Matthew chapter 4. Again, remembering the, the beauty of God, that he can write something a long time ago through a man and write it to a very specific audience. Matthew wrote to the Jews. <laughs> but the beauty of the Spirit's composition of the Scriptures is that while it was written for that audience, it was also written for this one. That today, the Lord had you in mind when he wrote this. This is God's Word in Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would give life and light. Your word's perfect. We are not. We are frail creatures. Help us, we ask, for Christ's sake. Amen. One of the most interesting little critters in God's green earth is called the geographer cone snail. The geographer cone snail. And some of you, I'm sure, are already freaking out because you know what it is. No, you don't. It's a little snail that makes shells that are about this long. Uh, They're beautiful little shells. In fact, actually, if you've uh, been to the coast of North or South Carolina and you see the the swirling white shells, you know, the ones that kind of curl that look like a kind of miniature conch shell. Uh, That's what these shells look like. They're beautiful, uh, about four inches long or so, maybe six. And they have the most beautiful kind of shiny brown spotted appearance. They are absolutely marvelous looking shells. There's only one complication with it. And the complication is these marvelous little uh, shells have this little snail that lives inside it. And the little snail that lives inside it has uh, a tiny little kind of proboscis that it can sting with. And it stings with this mix of a neurotoxin mixed with insulin. You think, oh, that sounds interesting. It's one of two creatures that we know of that produce insulin as part of a sting. 
The thing that's most interesting about this little snail, though, is that uh, while it has this most beautiful little shell and the snail itself looks very harmless, the combination of that neurotoxin and the insulin, when it enters the human body, what it does is it goes to your nerves and your pain receptors and freaks them out. Uh, And in fact, actually, it freaks them out at a rate that is 10,000 times more effective than morphine. Hear that number again. 10,000 times more effective than morphine. And what morphine does is it freaks your nerves out and it tells them to shut off so you stop feeling anything. The problem with the geographer cone snail is that when it fires off your nerve endings at 10,000 times more effectiveness than morphine, it tells them all simultaneously to send pain to your brain. It's in Australia. It's on the beaches of Australia, not here, thankfully. Uh, they call it the cigarette uh, snail because you have about as long before, uh, to smoke a cigarette before the pain kicks in. And once you do, there is no treatment. The only thing you can do is ride it out, and if your brain is strong enough to not be overloaded with pain signals and literally die from pain, you'll be fine. The only problem is that it takes somewhere between one and five hours for the toxin to wear off. So for somewhere between one and five hours, you're forced to endure all of your pain receptors simultaneously firing off as pain and hope your brain doesn't melt. People die of an overloaded brain. It's literally sensory overload that kills them or heart attack from processing. It's the most amazing little thing because it's this tiny little snail that you would never, ever guess this most beautiful little shell that contains one of the most dangerous venoms in the world. Realize this is like thousands of times worse than cobra venom and things like that. This is one of the like three or four most venomous creatures on God's green earth. I feel like when we come to Matthew chapter 4, that's in many ways what these temptations kind of look like and function like. When we see them on the surface, they're kind of like a little bit obvious in some of them or maybe odd on one of them where we don't tend to think of them as that big of a deal. Right? It would be like us going to the beach in Australia or visiting there and saying, oh, look, it's a, it's a seashell. It's not that big of a deal. I mean, everything in this country is designed to kill you. Certainly the seashells can't do it, right? Well, unfortunately, the seashells are the worst of the lot. Right? Much better to die a different way than that. I mean, out of all the ways in Australia, that's perhaps one of the worst ways I can conceive of to die. These temptations, I think, kind of function similarly, where we look at them and we say, well, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, it's really not that big of a deal. And kind of glance over or forget that, oh no, the devil knows what he's doing. These temptations are unusually vicious, unusually difficult, unusually venomous in what he's trying to do. In the book of Matthew thus far, we've seen that Matthew has framed out the Lord Jesus to be the high king, to be the king of kings, the one who was predicted to come to rule the land with justice and grace and mercy and truth. In chapter 3, though, he really begins to introduce an, an, an additional idea. Not only is this Jesus the high king, but he's also the high priest. He's the one that takes all of the people of God upon himself. 
He's their representative. And now in chapter 4, we get to find out exactly what kind of representative he is. How will he respond to the most devious temptations we can possibly think of? Now, we'd be um, kind of remiss to start in on this and not to acknowledge kind of these are their composite temptations. And by that, I mean, it's not just the surface thing that is the obvious problem. In fact, actually, each of these temptations have three things going on with them. And we're going to look at all three. A general human problem, a general human temptation, and then a specific application for Jesus. Right, so general problem, kind of common to mankind, general temptation, again, common to mankind, but then something specifically nasty for the Lord Jesus himself. So, temptation one, Jesus was led up into, by the Spirit. He's following the Spirit who's come upon him in his baptism in chapter 3. He's led off into the wilderness specifically for the purpose of warfare. It is time now for the high king to begin his combat with the enemy. It is time now for the high king to begin his warfare against the devil. And so he goes out into the desert where he fasts 40 days and 40 nights. And I love, again, how beautifully understated the scriptures are. The end of verse 2, and he was hungry. No joke. No joke. I mean, some of us are hungry after 40 minutes much less 40 days and 40 nights. Yes, of of course he's hungry. Uh, This is the height of human frailty. You see that what is happening is he's not just encountering the devil kind of at his best, so to speak. He's doing warfare with the devil at his weakest. And again, acknowledging kind of human existence, this is a very real problem. Uh, It's Snickers' most famous and most excellent marketing campaign. I love the marketing campaign from Snickers about how when we get hungry, uh, we turn into all kinds of people that we don't like. Maybe we get grumpy, some of us. Maybe we get whiny, some of us. Whatever it is here, Jesus, uh, at the height of human frailty, has been uh, fasting 40 days and now has one-to-one combat with the evil one. Verse 3, the tempter comes to him and, and says, If you are the Son of God... Command these stones to become loaves of bread. And three parts, again, the general human problem. What's the general human problem? Well, Matthew's already told us, Jesus is hungry. He needs something to eat. It's been more than a month since he had a meal. That is a long time to go without food. He is starving, and and not the way I say starving after I had a late lunch and I'm ready to sit down to dinner. I mean, literally, he's starving. His body's begun to go through all the process of, of shutting down, I'm sure, because it's in starvation mode. It's a reality that's common to mankind. His body needs something. And this is kind of the great reality of being humans. Men and women, boys and girls, we're designed with bodies that are not infinite. We're designed with bodies that are finite. We're in one time and in one place, and we need things. We need sleep. 
What happens if you go without sleep? You die. What happens if you go without water? You die. What happens if you go without food? Well, long enough, you die. What What happens, interestingly, is babies, if you go without love and affection, they die. We're designed to be this way. It's a problem that's common to man, and at this point, not an inherently evil problem. That's important to understand. It's not an inherently evil problem. The devil then goes to Jesus with uh, what I would suggest is a, a kind of a general human temptation. Look, Jesus, you're hungry. That's common to man. You're designed to get that way. It's part of what makes you, you. So therefore, go do something about it. In fact, actually, go do everything about it. And that's more of what the temptation is. It's a temptation to problem solve uh, with kind of the height of pragmatism, to take whatever solution you can get to solve the problem immediately. It's encouraging Jesus to be governed by his desires to do that which he wants to do immediately to make his body feel better. We've seen this in the Old Testament work out the other way, right? The one brother comes in in the middle, his brother's cooking a stew. You remember, and the the brother's been out hunting and he's starving and he's not really starving, but he's hungry. And he says, here, give me some of that stew. Brother number two says what? Sure, I'll give it to you. For a price. Give me your birthright. Brother number one's like, oh, I have to have the food right now. I'll do anything to have the food right now. Anything to make my body feel better right now. You see, in essence, I think the heart of this temptation is what the devil is presenting to Christ is an attempt to kind of short circuit the waiting process between recognizing a need and finding a fulfillment. He's saying, look, you have a need. Your body has needs. That's not evil. We're we're designed to have that. And in fact, actually, we're designed for those needs to be met. There's a reason why so much of the scriptures talk about the Lord providing our daily bread and providing water in the desert and providing sleep and things like that. The the challenge, though, is to keep God's people from being governed by those desires. To be driven by those desires, to function like the common beasts that immediately have to have that kind of cause and effect met. Right? This is how we train our dogs, isn't it? We put food in front of them to make them do what we want them to do because food will motivate them to do just about anything. That's effectively what the devil is doing to the Lord Jesus. Look, it's been over a month since you've eaten. Here's some nice, tasty food. Are you going to do whatever I say to get the food? And I think one of the challenges that we have in these temptations is they, they become common to us and we kind of lose the sense of wonder of how great the victory is that Jesus is winning. And I think it's important that we put this in language that we understand. Think about your physical desire that drives you the most. It's different for different people. For some people, it is the desire to sleep. And if you touch their sleep, oh man. Right? Oh, 
For some people, it's food. Some people, it's physical intimacy or things like that. And to see, how do we process that, that the gap between recognizing what we want and accomplishing what we get? You know, think, again, think about the one that you crave the most. Think about your longing the most. And think about, again, the Lord Jesus at the, the height of brokenness being confronted with that reality. Now, the devil is very smart. He's not wise, but he is very clever. And here, not just tempting Jesus to, to solve it, right? He could have said, go find some food. Go eat a bug. Eat some grass, right? Don't make your tummy stop growling. He then couples in with it a kind of unusually pernicious, little dangerous bit for Christ himself. This is the illustration for me of thinking of the snail that looks so pretty on the outside, but oh man, how devastating on the end. He says, look, if you're the son of God, which chapter 3 he's been told by the father he is, turn these stones into bread. And I think out of all the temptations, this is the one that is to me the most interesting. Because is it sinful for Jesus to turn stones into bread? No, it's not. I mean, we're going to see he does that later effectively where he takes bread and turns it into a whole bunch more bread and takes fish and turns it into a whole bunch more fish. He's already taken water and turned it into wine. It's, it's not an issue of him turning one thing into another. That's not a problem. It's not an issue for him to make food out of nothing. That's not a problem. The real issue that, that the devil is putting here is for Jesus to take his divine power and to apply it for his own protection, for his own provision, instead of trusting God. Instead of resting in the knowledge of what God is doing, it's a challenge for him to take kind of matters into his own hands, so to speak, and to use his divine power to solve the problem. Now, this is why this is such an interesting temptation, because I think realistically we're all tempted with this in some fashion. Right? We're all tempted with the danger of saying, look, our flesh wants something. It wants food, drink, sleep, shelter. It, you know, it wants whatever it wants. I'll go about solving that problem myself. I'll go about meeting my needs myself. I'll go about doing whatever I have to do to get it done, to get those things so that my needs feel met. That's the temptation. Only for Jesus, he actually has the power to do it. We are kind of an exercise in comedy. We can't accomplish those things the way that we wish. It's an exercise in futility in many cases where we want sleep, but maybe we, it doesn't come. We were struggling with insomnia. You can't take an insomniac and say, hey, go sleep. Well, if that worked, they would have done it a long time ago, right? That would, they wouldn't be an insomniac at that point. It's like taking somebody who's suffering with cancer and go be well. Well, if they could have done that, they already would have. Jesus, on the other hand, does have the power to do it, and that's why this temptation is so unbelievably difficult. 
is challenging him to utilize his divine power for his own ends to benefit himself. And it's interesting, uh, Jesus, you get to see what kind of king he is. He's not here to help himself. He's here to help us. He's here to help you and me. He's here to care for us. And so an action that perhaps might not have been a sinful thing necessarily to take stone and to turn it into loaves of bread becomes sinful because of the purpose that he would be using it for. Meeting his own physical desires. Again, I would encourage us to just, again, pause for a moment and reflect. This is a temptation, again, that is common to man. Again, not that we can turn stones into bread. But for us to spend our energies meeting our physical desires or emotional desires at all costs. I know that uh, 2020 has been a bit of an interesting year for the history books, we could say. Uh, I think that if you actually watch the news more than anything, this is probably what you're getting to watch. It's a culture that's really beginning to understand that it has needs and desires, but is unwilling to pursue God's mechanism to meet those ends and desires. It's a culture that's beginning to diagnose the problem, to say that you know, all of the affluence in the world isn't enough to make my soul stop longing. All of the wealth in the world is not enough to make the inside of my heart stop talking. And the voice is always saying, I need, I need, I need, I need. And so rather than resting in a God who gives contentment, we're watching a culture try to kind of eat itself, filling the need inside And again, it's easy for us to kind of throw stones at them out there and say, well, those are the bad people. Those are the wicked people. We never do that. That's a different sort of sin, but equally untrue. Again, think about your own life. How many times this week alone you let either your physical desires, your emotional desires, your personal desires shape your personality or your interactions with your friends and family. Makes Jesus look a little bit better, doesn't it? The second temptation is one that I think we tend to look at and go, well, that doesn't make any sense. What a stupid thing. Nobody would be dumb enough to be tempted by that. Well, again, it's the snail, right? It looks simple on the outside. It's very complicated on the inside. Verse 5, the devil takes Jesus to the uh, temple on the top of Jerusalem. Looking down, this is a tall building, and uh, Jesus is out looking over the city, looking over, it would have been quite a drop. And the uh, the devil says to him, look, just throw yourself off. (laughs) Here, I'll quote to you Psalm 91, kind of. Leave out some key parts, but I'll quote to you more or less. He's going to command his angels concerning you. You're going to be able to fall and the angels will bear you up. You're not going to hit the ground. All you have to do is throw yourself off. And you think, well, this is kind of an odd temptation. I mean, most of us have not been tempted to harm ourselves, so maybe some have. 
I imagine 40 days of hunger, that might seem a little bit more appealing. That's actually, I don't think, what's happening here at all. I don't think this is just simply a temptation for self-harm. I think, actually, this is a temptation for verification. You see, we read Westminster chapter 8, paragraph 2, because it highlights so clearly that the, the, the natures of Christ are separate. They don't blend. They don't, they don't merge. There's no, uh, was it composition? There's no um, conversion, composition, or confusion. They, they don't blend, meaning Jesus is fully human. And in his humanity, he has access to all that it means to be fully human. Which is incredible to think about that as Jesus grew up as a young boy, his knowledge of God came from reading the scriptures. It did not come from the experience of his divinity in heaven in, in the pre-existent, you know, pre-incarnate state, not pre-existent, pre-incarnate state. He learns of what it means to be the Son of God by reading the Old Testament. He learns of who God is by reading the Old Testament. He learned of what he knew through his mother telling him about her interactions with the angels, with his father telling him about his interactions with the angels, but through the reading of the scriptures. And it's intriguing that at this point in his life, he's already three decades in-ish, come to full understanding that he is the Messiah. He's the one that's been prophesied since the middle of Genesis chapter 3. But you also know how often I know God's promises, but I still have that little bit of niggling doubt in the back. I mean, how many times, again, maybe just this week for you, do you, you know God has promised that everything that's happening to you is for your good. But how many times did you doubt that this week? Where you're like, oh, they're driving me crazy. Right? They're driving me crazy. This is so bad for me. Can't tell you how many times I hear that in, in pastoral counseling. Well, this, whatever situation it is, it's so bad for me. Interesting. It's not what God thinks. He's using it for your good. It might be a terrible situation. It might be filled with terrible things. It might be filled with terrible feelings. But God's using it for your good. Do we really doubt God's promises? And in fact, actually, that's that kind of uh, general human problem. We do not have access to God's mind apart from his word and apart from creation. We, we don't, we're not taken into the heavenly places. We don't get to see the heavenly throne room. Instead, what we're left with is God's word and his promises. And we are confronted with the gap between what we watch in creation and what God has promised. And so we're presented with a general human temptation to doubt. To doubt God's promises and to, to disbelieve them and say, well, surely it's, it's true in most cases, but it's not true in this one. When God has said that he does all things for our good. And when I get cancer, do I doubt that and say, well, I mean, he does everything for our good, but not this. Or we say God has a perfect plan and he, he knows what he's doing and he's wise, except when it comes to my loneliness. He doesn't know what he's doing there. 
This isn't how people are supposed to feel. Uh, He doesn't know what's happening in my life. He doesn't know what my pain feels like. He doesn't know real pain. Or when he promises that he actually really and truly does forgive us for sin. And we say, no, I have to cling to it. I I haven't haven't atoned for it enough. Well, friend, you can't atone for it. You're the one who did it. That's the problem. Jesus is the only one who can atone for it. It's this very common human experience where we're presented with God's word and we're presented with our circumstances and we begin to doubt which one is going to win out, which one is which. Jesus is presented with a similar experience. He's been told throughout the entirety of the scriptures that the Messiah would be God's man and the Messiah would win. No ifs, ands, or buts. Psalm 91 is very clear about that. Interestingly, even where the devil quotes, no ifs, ands, or buts. God's Messiah will win. You realize verse 6 at the heart of its temptation The devil is presenting Jesus with the opportunity to verify that he's the Messiah. He's actually presenting Jesus with the opportunity to get rid of any doubts at all. Interestingly, chapter 3, you just had your baptism and you had the, the Holy Spirit descend on him like a dove and most likely linger there for a season. But he might still have just some potentially... This is what the devil's trying to play on, which, of course, Jesus wins spectacularly. Do you want proof that you're the Son of God? Simple. Throw yourself off, and God will show you. You see, it's not actually a temptation for self-harm. It's a temptation for the verification and the validity of what he's doing. This is one of those things that, oh my goodness, I've heard about so many times again in in pastoral counseling. Is this the person I'm supposed to marry if only I had a clear and definite answer? Is this the job I'm supposed to take if only I had a clear and definite answer? Is this the move I'm supposed to make? Is this the choice I'm supposed to choose? Is this the thing I'm supposed to do? And unfortunately, American evangelicalism has has made this so much worse as we've kind of begun to, to delight in the mystical. We've forgotten Romans chapter 12 that the Lord designs for his will to be obvious to us. He wants us to know it and he doesn't want it hidden, which is why he's given us his word. But again, how many times Christians long for it? If, if I just had proof that God was doing what he's doing. That's the temptation for Christ. And here, obviously, a particularly nasty one is it's his proof that he's the Messiah. That he is the very son of God. And again, you can marvel at this if you just pause for a moment and just reflect on your own self. Where are the areas in your life where you doubt God's promises for you? You doubt his goodness for you. You doubt his wisdom for you. You doubt that his word is sufficient. Again, how much do we see today in our current culture where the American church or those who claim Christ are constantly looking for answers, but forget to look in the thing where he gives them?
The third temptation, I think, is the most terrible of them all. Verse 8, the devil takes him to a very high mountain and shows him the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Either a vision physically, we don't know. He's basically showcasing for him uh, the kingdom of earth. And presents him with a challenge that, again, as a, as a child, I read this and thought, well, that is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Surely no one would ever be tricked by that. And you are correct. No one would ever be tricked by that if they had our limited amount of knowledge going into it. The thing is that Jesus is the greatest Bible scholar in history. So the temptation that's presented to him is a little bit more complicated than what we understand. You see, by this point, Jesus has, through the reading of the scriptures, already realized he is the Messiah. He's already realized that his task, his ministry, is to minister for the the people of God, to redeem uh, them for God the Father. And he has already come to fully understand the path that he will take is the path of God's wrath. He already knows this. He knows the culmination of his ministry will be undergoing the full and entire wrath of God on behalf of his people. He knows that he will be taking our sins upon him. And you know what? He understands better than any person in human history how absolutely terrible and painful that will be. And what the devil is doing is presenting him with a choice. You can become the king of kings by undergoing that wrath, or you can become the king of kings by skipping that wrath. Which choice do you want? It would be like going to Australia and saying, hey, I have these really pretty seashells. Would you like one that has the snail alive in it or one that has the snail that's already dead? You see, ooh, that's a really tricky temptation, isn't it? Because what Jesus is forced to choose at this point is, do I choose to follow the path of the cross or do I take the easy way out? Do I choose to follow the path that is going to lead to my death, to lead to my destruction on the cross, to lead to my separation from God Almighty, to lead to me becoming the scorn of God, the subject of all of his perfectly holy wrath, or do I take the way that gives me the same end but without all the difficulty? And please do not underestimate how much Jesus understands about the wrath of God. You remember if you fast forward into the garden the night before, what happens? As he's in prayer over the wrath of God, it is so grievous to him that it begins to burst the capillaries in his skin and he begins bleeding as part of his prayer life. I'm going to tell you 
What he is contemplating is not some sort of simple unpleasantness, the way that as children we used to get all worked up about getting a shot before we get it. And then afterwards we're like, well, that wasn't that bad. And I remember as a kid doing that, throwing absolute tantrums, and then looking back and being like, really? I put up that much of a fight for that, something that small. That is not the case for Jesus. He understands the wrath of God, and it's no small thing. And so the devil is presenting him with a choice. Will you choose to undergo the wrath of God, or will you short-circuit it and choose the easy way? Now, this is a temptation that is so unbelievably common to the church. It looks something like this. I want all of the blessings of Christianity. I just want all of them without counting the cost and without dying to myself and without having to stop sinning and without, you know, carrying my own cross and dying to self every day. I want all of the blessings. I want all of the happiness. I want all of the joy. I want all of the good things without any of the challenges, without any of the suffering, without any of the hurting of my feelings, without any of the being told that I'm wrong and I have to change, without any of the discipline. This is the struggle that we have with so many of the kind of quote, quote, prosperity type preachers in America is that in many cases, they get some of the blessings absolutely right. Not every case, but in some cases. The problem is that they have divorced it from the suffering They take the promise, uh, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. And take it away from the, if any man doesn't hate his father or mother in comparison, he's not worthy of me. They, They remove it from the difficulty. And I would lovingly push back and say, this is what we do. Again, it's so fun for us to kind of throw stones at the, the bad people, the weak people out there. This is us. Oh my goodness. I mean, let's just be honest. Why do you not read your Bible more? That's hard. Why do you not pray more? Well, it's hard. More complicated, but oh boy, it's hard. Why, why do you not do the things of God more? It's hard. <laughs> we like the blessings of God. We don't like the difficulties. This is why I wanted to just kind of briefly ponder these and think specifically the nature of these temptations because as we do so, it showcases just how absolutely beautiful the Lord Jesus is. Realistically, when your elders pray for you here, we pray, we, we actually by and large don't pray that you have victory over temptation. And the reason being is because if you're anything like us, we give in so fast. So we pray that we're not put in situations where we would be tempted. That, that we actually are kept from temptation because we sin so easily. We pray that we're not given the opportunity to sin so that we don't have opportunity to grieve the Lord. The thing that is so marvelous here is that Jesus, at the just lowest point, humanly speaking, not having eaten for a month, is presented with three temptations that are both unbelievably common to mankind, but specifically devious to him. And in all three cases, 
chooses the right thing, glorifies the Lord, and actually responds with the word of God in an imperative form. He responds with the commands of God. Interestingly, he's not, he doesn't cling to the promises of God the way that I would. He's so holy. He, he can just say, God said not to do it. I'm not going to do it. That's his response. It is absolutely marvelous as to who he is. It's also why I wanted to just kind of, again, present it this way so we could think about just for a moment what it means when it says that he takes my record and I get his. You realize that when God the Father looks at you, this is what he sees. He doesn't see the person who failed on all three of these temptations like this morning and yesterday evening and yesterday afternoon and yesterday morning. When he looks at us, legally speaking, he sees the beauty of Christ. He sees this perfection in holiness. He sees this with love and glory and joy. I do sometimes think that we don't tend to think God loves us very much. I mean, we can think it kind of generally and conceptually, but we don't actually think about it pragmatically. And I, I think largely because we think he only sees us as we are and forget that he sees us as this. And that on the cross, he saw Jesus as all of the things I've done this week. And may it be that we would kind of two things from this. One is to just reflect on uh, this with a sense of gratitude, a sense of joy, a sense of thanksgiving that this is how God has chosen for his people to be redeemed, that freely, I'm talking freely to us, Jesus says, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, that can be your standing before God. It costs you nothing. Cost him everything. Cost you nothing. This is all you get. Just take it. He freely gives. But then secondly, and this is kind of a bit more pragmatically, but for people of God, should we wish to be a bit more victorious against temptation? I suspect it would be helpful to us if we actually knew the scriptures better. Right? Jesus responds with three quotes, largely from Deuteronomy as his response. I'm going to be honest with you, most of us can't quote the scriptures were the devil to even come uh, and tempt us that way. So would it be that we would learn the scriptures and marvel at the beauty of Christ? Let us pray. Lord, we bless you. We thank you. We particularly praise you for Jesus, our perfect Savior. We love you. We love him. We love the Spirit. Thank you that we can be righteous in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.